Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only enact legislation within a narrow set of ideas, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Last summer, wildfires broke out in California that killed people and caused billions of dollars in damage. More wildfires are happening out west again this year. And while the national narrative tends to be about why climate change causes fires, there is a more complicated and, frankly, more interesting story to tell about forest management. Jonathan Wood has argued that dangerous fires are a result of decisions made in forest management and that changes in how the federal government maintains its land can prevent large fires in the future. Jonathan is the Vice President of Law and Policy at the Property and Environment Research Center, a free market conservation and research institute in Bozeman, Montana. Jonathan, why is it always out west? Aren't there forests elsewhere that are wildfire risks? Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, but to answer your question, the reason why wildfires are worse out west is primarily because of ownership. Uh, in the east, there are a lot. There used to be a lot of fires, but most of the forest land is privately owned, and private landowners have really strong incentives to manage their land to address wildfire risk. If you own private land and a wildfire starts and spreads to your neighbors, you're going to be liable for that. Um, and so you have a, a really strong incentive to manage for that risk. Whereas in the West, most of the forested areas where this wildfire risk exists are owned by the federal government, which doesn't face that kind of sense. You can't sue the federal government for a fire going from federal land to, to private land. Um, instead, that is entirely a political decision. And um, historically, the Forest Service's approach was to extinguish all fires from the forest, um, which sounds good in theory, except these are fire-adapted forests. They're only healthy if they experience frequent low-intensity fires. So the fire exclusion policy meant that for decades, we allowed fuels to build up to dangerous levels. And today we're seeing the consequences of that as fires return to the forest and burn hotter, bigger, and are more destructive. So wait, what kind of forests are these? Why they're, fire, they they're called fire adaptive, adapted. That's because for millennia, um, Native Americans managed the forest through fire. They're also prone to natural fires. So a lot of the fire ignition sources, things like lightning strikes, um, Many of our Western forests are, only remain healthy if they experience fire regularly to remove underbrush um, and dead trees so that um, wildlife continue to thrive, our, our air and water can remain healthy. Mm -hmm. So do these fires always come from lands owned by the federal government? No, um, a lot of the ignitions can happen on private land. So one of the problems in the West is that you have an area known as the wildland urban interface, which is where development meets undeveloped wild forested areas. Um, and it's that area, sort of the border between these two, where you see a lot of ignition. Um, so as more people have wanted to live near forests, recreate near forests, you've had more opportunities for ignition. Um, but an ignition source isn't what makes a fire catastrophic. Uh, basically, what determines whether a fire is catastrophic is how much fuel is on the ground and how dry is it. Um, and those factors are primarily determined by federal land. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what can forestry officials do to manage forests to mitigate dangerous wildfires? Uh, so the biggest is to pursue active forest restoration. And one of the good things and reasons for optimism is that this is something that people across the political spectrum, even within the government, are recognizing. 
According to the Forest Service, there are about 80 million acres of U.S. Forest Service land that are at high or that are in need of forest restoration. Most of those are deemed to be at high or very high risk of wildfire. If you look at the federal across federal agencies, wait, can I stop you there? What is forest restoration? Oh yeah, because sorry, it of course. Sounds on, like you're actually talking about um, lighting forests on fire and calling that restoration. Well, it can involve lighting forests on fire. Um, fire isn't always bad for forest health, especially for fire adapted forests. Um, and what restoration looks like might differ by where you're working, um, but at a basic level, it means actively managing the forest to produce the results we want. So that might mean going in and removing excess timber, dead trees, brush, which are some of the biggest sources for, for wildfire fuels. Um, it might also mean performing regular prescribed burns. So you get rid of those fuels when the weather is conducive to that and you don't run the same risks of a wildfire getting out of control um, and threatening communities. What do we want from a forest? I mean, you said, well, we've got to manage them for things that we want. What, what do we want our forest to do? Uh, we want a lot from our forests. Um, uh, people look at them not only as sources for economic opportunity, obviously uh, for a timber company, that's a potential job, but for a lot of people, it's an opportunity to recreate. It's a key habitat for wildlife that many of us value. Um, but fire threatens all of those values, which is why it's one of the few areas of forest management where you can actually see um, people across the aisle agreeing. Um, if you don't deal with the wildfire crisis, you're gonna lose all of them. You're gonna have fewer opportunities to recreate, you're gonna lose the wildlife habitat, and you're gonna have communities threatened. Um, so this, this is one of the- on a hike in a forest that's on fire. Exactly, <laughs> and not only that, but you might not enjoy the hike for years to come as the forest slowly recovers from the damage of a catastrophic wildfire. Interesting. Uh, I mean, this is going to, uh, might sound like a dumb question, but, doesn't nature just take care of these forests by itself? Why do they have to be managed by people? Um, in theory, that might have been possible one day, but, or, but as I said, for decades, the Forest Service managed forests to prevent all fires. Um, and so uh, basically we created a powder keg. If fires had been allowed to continue as they historically had, those fuels wouldn't have built up. Fires would have been frequent, but relatively low intensity and smaller. Um, the reason why people care about fires and are concerned about fires is not that they exist, but that how they're so destructive. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a consequence of this buildup of fuels, um, and especially the buildup of fuels near um, developed areas and residential areas. So for example, it might be less helpful to think about the acreage burned, although those are astronomical, but how much destruction is actually caused. In the last 15 years, almost 100,000 structures, many of which are homes, have been burned by catastrophic wildfires. 67% of that has been in the last four years alone. This mm -hmm. is a problem that's growing exponentially. All right, so I guess one last question about some uh, basic uh, uh, federal forest management. I mean, isn't timbering and otherwise removing potential wildfire fuel bad for forests and conservation? I mean, Not necessarily. Um, it depends on how it's done. Um, one of the difficulties in this space is that for people opposed to timber harvesting or active management, everything is a clear cut. Um, it doesn't matter what the actual plan is, it, it's, it's a clear cut. And the reality is, while clear cuts may have their, their proper role, most sorry. of the types- Clear cut? Uh, it, 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 oh, it, I'm it, sorry. Is this just a scary term for getting rid of a forest or what, what do you think? It's, uh, so clear cut is supposed to mean actually like removing all the trees in a given area and basically starting over that forest from scratch. What actually usually happens is a more selective spinning. You'll pick out the trees that are diseased or at risk of dying um, or, or um, 
or for some other reason need to be removed, but selectively, so you're not getting rid of the forest in an entire area and creating um, a bare spot. Um, but a lot of the fuel risk is actually not the trees, but all the brush and the, um, the dead trees on the forest floor. Um, and that stuff isn't commercially valuable. Um, so that's one of the big challenges. A lot of the forest restoration work, the timber harvesting removal is about that vegetation that isn't clear cut. It's not the big old trees that people are most concerned about conserving. Interesting. Um, so what, uh, I mean, why are, isn't the federal government managing these, to, uh, these forests to reduce wildfire risk? Uh, there are a couple of reasons, um, and we go into some of these obstacles in a new report for PERC called Fix America's Forest. Um, but one of the biggest ones is just that this is an, the Forest Service for decades has been primarily a firefighting agency, not a forest health management agency. Um, and so in the last several decades, the number of personnel that are wildfire experts has more than doubled. The number of people who have the skills and training to manage forests and conserve them has been cut in half. Um, you just don't have the resources at the federal level uh, to get that work done. And as a consequence, um, the amount of forest restoration work that's happening on the ground is a tiny fraction of what's needed. Um, at the current rate of forest restoration, it would take decades to clear that 80 million acre backlog I mentioned. That's something the Forest Service itself admits. We don't have the resources to do it. And it, you can't just throw money at that problem. That It's the lack of staff. All the people who can do that work are at the state level and in the private sector. Why is that? I mean, it seems like the federal government has a massive amount of resources that if it wanted to, it could do these things. So part of it is incentives. At the federal agency's incentive is to prevent the destruction from wildfires. So that's why over time you've seen all the resources move from forest health management to wildfire, because that's what shows up on the news. Um, that's what there's a really strong incentive to put resources behind. It's in the national news today. Exactly. Um, whereas the work that you do ahead of time to, so that a wildfire doesn't get out of control in the first place doesn't make headlines. Um, that work, if it's going to happen, it's going to be because people that are directly affected, local communities, local businesses, actually get involved and say, we want to protect the forests near us and all the values we get from it. And the only way to do that is to pay for forest restoration today. Mm -hmm. What do you want to see from in federal forest management? Uh, so I think the biggest one, biggest area of opportunity is to work more with states, tribes, and um, local communities. They are really the ones that bear the costs of wildfires and have really strong incentives to get this right. Um, and in Fix America's Forest, we go through some examples where this is actually happening, where communities are stepping up and saying, you know, we all agree there's a problem here. The Forest Service can't get to our area or doesn't have plans to address this wildfire risk for a very long time. We're willing to pay for it ourselves and help do the work. That's still the exception, not the norm, um, but it, but projects like that have been able to do really incredible work um, on the ground. So for instance, right now in the Tahoe National Forest in Northern California, um, there is an innovative effort to bring private capital um, to forest restoration. Some investors have basically created a new bond mechanism so the communities can borrow against the future value they'll get from forests um, to fund forest restoration today. And that's enabling them to go out and restore tens of thousands of acres. Uh, how does that bond work? I mean, what is the value in, in a forest besides uh, so timbering rights or mineral rights? I guess mineral rights aren't even tied into the value of a forest. It's the stuff underneath. Right. Um, so it depends on the forest. In that case, the people pay, that will ultimately pay the bond back are the state of California. It wants to reduce its wildfire fighting costs and a local water utility. And the reason for the utility to invest in this project is that if a wildfire happens, it is it can devastate 
um, water infrastructure. You'll have erosion after fire that dumps sediment into storage um, areas, um, and you'll have higher um, costs to treat water because the water will just be polluted by um, debris and smoke and all sorts of other things that people don't want to drink. Okay. Um, so that's one of the things, these, these water conservation bonds, that's something that's already happening right now? Is this just something you want to encourage in the future? Or is there some policies that need to change to, to allow this to happen more often? Exactly. It's happening now, but it's the exception. If you want to ramp up um, innovative projects like this, you have to deal with the underlying regulatory obstacles to forest restoration. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, basically all the policies are set up to do nothing. Um, that if you want to manage the forest, you have to jump through all the hoops. If you want to do nothing and let them burn, um, that's really easy. Um, mm -hmm. so we've essentially got the incentives backwards. We go into the report and explain how if you want to do forest restoration, it takes years of environmental analysis um, before you can even get to the prospect of possibly doing some work. Um, and that is a huge hurdle for some of these small collaborative groups to overcome. What are those regulations and why do they exist? Uh, they're well-intentioned. The idea was we don't want to do some, approve some big project that has environmental consequences without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, so the big ones are the National Environmental Policy Act, basically just an environmental review process, um, and the Endangered Species Act. But they both sort of assume this idea that if you do nothing, that's good for the environment and good for species. And in many areas, maybe that makes sense, but in the wildfire context, it doesn't, because if you allow the wildfire to happen, you've destroyed the habitat, you've destroyed the forest. Um, dangerous wildfires are bad for endangered species. Exactly. Um, and so one of the things that you can look to do to address that problem um, that Congress has considered doing is creating exceptions that allow certain types of projects to go forward where they're likely not going to have adverse environmental consequences or likely to benefit endangered species. So you'll see um, there's something called a categorical exclusion that can be adopted to basically say, in these areas where wildfire risks are so great, um, if the agency checks these few boxes, um, we'll, we'll allow the project to go forward. And that makes a huge difference. A categorical exclusion takes about nine months to process. Full environmental review takes over three years, mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot of time for something to ignite and a fire to burn. Why does it take three years? Uh, most of it is just the amount of paperwork involved. Um, agencies basically have to craft their reports to, with an eye towards litigation down the road. If they overlook anything or miss any step, they can be sued and have to start all over, um, which once litigation enters into the process, the timelines blow up completely. So right now I'm in, in Bozeman, Montana, where in about, I think in 2003, the Forest Service recognized that wildfire risks threatened the city's water supply and came up with a plan to address um, the wildfire threat in the foothills right above, right above town. 15 plus years later. 2003? 2003. 15 plus years later, the work hasn't begun because there have been three rounds of environmental reviews, three rounds of litigation, um, and it's just a constant cycle of roadblocks preventing what most people recognize as vitally urgent work. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting because like, Litigation, I mean, we, I don't want to just dismiss it. Like, people have claims. There are laws that are duly passed that, uh, that feel like someone or that someone feels like they're violating. Why do these, uh, what's going on with these litigation or with these lawsuits? So, the biggest thing, I, I, first off, I agree with you. Litigation, I have been an environmental litigator for much of my career. I, I, there's a lot of value in environmental litigation. It's a question of what kind of cases are you getting and are they really helping? 
because um, litigation can also be um, a source of leverage and to prevent things for reasons that have nothing to do with the actual laws and claims you're bringing. So a lot of litigation is concerned about, we just don't like this type of project or there's timber harvesting, we don't like that, rather than really significant um, concerns about the plan. In the Bozeman case, after 15 years of environmental analysis and litigation, the project is exactly what it was originally. There have been no significant changes, no problems identified. It's been all delay and all expense. So this is one of the things that you want out of federal law that you seem to have gotten, which is in, in particular cases, uh, you don't have to go through uh, the lengthy review process. Like, is, is it subject to then just a simple cost benefit analysis by someone in the office or how does that work? The categorical exclusion process, while it's doing some good, is still limited. So right now, there is a categorical exclusion for up to 3,000 acres of treatment, which is helpful, but it's, it's such a small scale. Again, we're talking about 80 million acres that are in need. So 3,000 acres at a time, you're not going to make much progress. So that right now is hindering the amount of work that can be done. Um, but still, it's something. Um, it, it's allowing some progress. Um, and the way categorical exclusion works, categorical exclusions work, is basically the Forest Service designs the project and writes a short summary of the major environmental consequences of it and how they're going to be mitigated um, to ensure that there isn't going to be a major environmental consequence. Once you get into the world of, you know, there's a major effect, you have to do the full-blown environmental impact report that takes the what, what is a major environmental consequence? Because it seems like wildfires are. Right. So um, that's one that's sort of on the plus side of the ledger. You're preventing a fire to, to avoid those kinds of consequences. The types of consequences on the other side that the agency will look at is, okay, are there endangered species in this area that we might want to limit when we're in the forest and working? Um, so you can imagine a migratory species. Oh, sorry. What, what is that? Oh, what? Wind weir? Oh, I'm sorry. I may, I may have mumbled. Um, so you can imagine, for instance, that there is an endangered species in an area that's migratory. You might want to focus your effort when the species isn't there as opposed to when it's gotcha. there because if you set a fire, that might, that might hurt the endangered species. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so you've got, um, you've got these categorical exclusions. I assume you just want looser standards, have that apply to more land. You've got uh, bond things. It sounds like you're trying to find what's working and try and expand upon that. Uh, who supports your efforts to do that? I, you're exactly right. The idea is we, we're seeing certain models work right now at a smaller level, local level, and it's about how do you scale that up. And it depends on which obstacle we're talking about, who the supporters are. Um, so like one of the suggestions we have in the report is give the Forest Service more flexibility to enter into partnerships. Right now, due to appropriations rules, it can really only commit to like a three-year project, which is a really small project. The Forest Service likes those kinds of ideas because it's about more power for the agency. Maybe not so so keen on some of the other um, reforms, but but the biggest supporters are the people who bear the cost of wildfires. Like if it's your community, if it's your drinking water supply, or the area where you like to recreate and view wildlife, um, that's where the motivation is to get something done and to really take care of these obstacles. And a reason for hope, I mean, you see people, from, whether Republicans or Democrats, living in Western states that see the real consequence of wildfire, they recognize that doing nothing isn't an option anymore, hmm. that something has to be done. So you even see Democrats talking about, okay, how do we do very narrow fixes to really politically charged environmental laws? And you don't want to reform them too much because that's going to get uh, a lot of political pushback. But what can we do on the margin so that we get more active restoration and protect communities from wildfire? Mm -hmm. That's kind of interesting because, uh, at least 
from the little national debate that I follow on this issue, it just seems like there's resignation to the fact that these wildfires are going to happen, they're going to be intense, and climate change is going to burn all of the Western states or something to that regard. Uh, but you're saying that actually there's a lot of other things that we can do, and there's some uh, barriers that we can eliminate to uh, just to prevent uh, wildfires from harming people. Yes, uh, I've, I've certainly seen the coverage you're, you're talking about and been disappointed by it. Um, one of the unfortunate things about our media and political landscape is that most climate change discussion is, you know, the, the sky is falling, it, it's, it's Armageddon, um, which can be disempowering, like that, that's discouraging from, from addressing some of these risks. Climate change undoubtedly plays a role. I said earlier, um, what makes a catastrophic wildfire is the amount of fuel and how dry it is, and climate change is definitely affecting that second factor. Um, but that doesn't mean we should do nothing. If you want to protect communities from wildfires this year, next year, and for years to come, you have to go out and manage forests to produce those results. Doing nothing will just allow wildfires to get worse. And we, we're on a clear trajectory. So your listeners might be interested to know that in the 80s, only about 3 million acres burned uh, per year. In the 2000s, it went up to 6 million acres. We're right now around 10, and the Forest Service estimates will be at 20 million acres by the mid-century. So the stakeholders, I mean, the people directly affected by these fires have a strong say. And I think they also probably do a lot to set the tone for the debate or the expectation that something or that someone with the federal government or the state government or even your local government should be responsible to try to uh, to prevent these harms. Uh, who else has a say in this in this issue? Well, one of the exciting things about these locally driven projects is they tend to be collaborative. The old model of Forest Service management was the Forest Service comes up with a plan, it issues a contract for a timber company to do the work, um, and the public sort of sitting on the sidelines, either objecting or supporting. The, the models we talk about in Fix America's Force are different in that it's the local communities themselves bringing people that disagree together and saying, mm -hmm. okay, we don't necessarily all have the same vision for what the work looks like, but we all recognize the problem. Mm -hmm. Where's the common ground? What kind of, like, you know, if you don't want trees cut down, what's the alternative you have? How can we find a compromise here? And I think that's really important because that changes the debate so that it's not good versus bad, but really about people finding common ground trying to work together. Mm -hmm. And the trees cutting down is an important thing because if you have a timber company, they're making money off of uh, the timber, but you can also require them to do a lot of other environmental services while they're doing that and both stand to gain from the process. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it depends somewhat on the region and how much valuable timber is in forest. So southwestern forests tend not to have as valuable timber. Pacific Northwest forests do. So in the Pacific Northwest, most of the restoration is happening by timber companies doing that work in exchange for a harvesting contract. But in the long run, I think we need to bring all of the values to the table. So it's not just timber companies footing the bill, but um, recreation, outdoor recreation companies that want to preserve um, important areas, conservation groups that are concerned about wildlife. Um, the way to influence what projects look like is to pay for the values you want to protect um, and to exert some influence that way. Shouldn't insurers care about this issue? I mean, it, I, I assume that you know these homes that are being burned by wildfires are are insured, and, and if it doesn't cost a lot of money to do management, they have an incentive to do some forestry management or to encourage uh, Insurers absolutely are, are concerned, and we go into them a little bit in, in the report. Um, the incentives for insurers are for, to protect insured homes. Um, so there's a lot of innovation happening right now um, in the wildland-urban interface 
for insurance companies to come in when a fire starts and to protect the insured properties so that the fire doesn't spread to them. Um, but insurance companies don't have the same incentive to go out proactively and manage the forest. That's something that's really going to happen because communities are pushing for it um, and the Forest Service is willing to work with them. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's kind of interesting well, the way that you're talking about this because what you're not doing is saying these are the ideal forestry management policies. Let's just do these things. You're trying to say, we have this big problem. There are some people that are working on this. What can we do to help those processes along? Why do you take this incremental approach rather than um, a, a broader, uh, broader, larger top-down approach to, uh, uh, to this problem? Well, I would say there are two reasons. The first is that our forests are different. They have different climates, different types of trees, different structures. So one size fit, uh, well, one size fits all solution probably wouldn't work. Um, but also, I think there's a Hayekian opportunity here that communities have different values and um, different goals for their forests. So one community might want to see forests as an engine of economic opportunity and want to have a timber industry. Another might be more concerned about the recreation. And those communities are going to pick different types of projects to fit what they value. And so rather than having the federal government come in and say, this is actually the right model, I'd rather see that develop organically with markets deciding how to allocate these different choices. How optimistic are you in the future that we're going to do a better job of managing these forests to prevent wildfire risks? Uh, I'm optimistic in the medium, medium term. The, the fact that you have an 80 million acre backlog means that the problem isn't going to be tackled overnight. It's not going to be tackled next year. Um, but the fact that people are already coming around to this view of locally driven, collaborative forest restoration um, gives me hope that as that scales, we can protect the most threatened areas. Uh, you know, as we talked a little bit at the beginning, forests, aren't, our fires aren't necessarily bad in Western forests. It's about where they are and how destructive they are. Um, you can make a big difference by just protecting the areas in your communities and, and addressing fuel so that fire can return and, and be a factor for forest health as opposed to destruction. What are the factors that are going to influence how quickly we do more of the things that you recommend? If I could only highlight three, I think they would be first, the Forest Service has to be able to be an equal partner for these projects. So I mentioned the, um, the innovative project in Tahoe dealing with the bond. You notice I didn't list the Forest Service as a, a part of that bond, even though- I mean, I, I didn't, but now I- oh, Yeah, um, and it has the biggest incentive because it's the, the it, it's forest, obviously, but also um, the Forest Service is responsible for putting out the wildfires when they occur. You'd think it would have a huge incentive to participate, um, but it can't. Under current um, appropriations regulations, as I said, it can only commit to short-term, like three-year projects. It can't financially commit to big, ambitious, in that case, a 15,000 acre forest restoration project, just because of the restrictions on the ways that um, the agency finances um, its work. In the report, we suggest making basically a conservation restoration fund that the agency can tap into for that kind of project so that the agency's management decisions aren't wholly held captive by the semi-annual appropriations process. I mean, what are the Forest Service's interests and incentives on this issue? I mean, you mentioned that they are firefighters first and foremost, um, but what else affects their decision making? So I think the motivation is there to get at forest restoration. When you listen to the leadership at the Forest Service, they take this seriously. Um, they, they recognize that big, significant changes are necessary to, to manage the wildfire problem. 
Um, they're the ones who came up with the estimate of 80 million acres um, in need of restoration. Um, it's really about getting rid of, dealing with the regulatory obstacles that keep the Forest Service from shifting its focus to restoration, whereas right now it remains primarily on extinguishing the wildfires. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I mean, it sounds like you prefer like something like making your decisions not on these uh, regulations about um, externalities and endangered species, but rather through a cost-benefit lens. Is, is that accurate? Um, I suppose that probably is what would happen in these collaborative processes because mm -hmm. you're bringing in more stakeholders um, and more perspectives. But the lens I think about is more of that collaborative process, finding um, areas of common agreement, and in particular, getting disparate groups to all contribute. Because that's where I see the opportunity so that you're not relying so much on timber and that commercial value to get these projects off the ground, but all the many other values that we get from our, our forest, as opposed to an agency issuing a report, whether that's an environmental report or cost-benefit report, that's still a top-down top model from DC saying communities that this is what you should do, rather than communities trying to build some of that themselves. Who is going to make those decisions? Because it does seem like Congress will probably have to be involved in, in some things, in addition to just the local communities trying to figure out what they what they can do. That's right. So at a first level, the Forest Service has to be involved because it has to approve any project on federal land. But many of the obstacles that are keeping these projects from scaling up are in legislation. So unless Congress comes in um, and, you know, we mentioned NEPA, if, unless Congress creates a categorical exclusion to deal with this problem. Um, there's not much the Forest Service can do on that front. Um, Congress has to deal with the appropriations problem. Uh, the agency can't excuse itself from, mm -hmm. from those restrictions. Um, so it, it really will require action by a lot of different um, participants, but really the conversation needs to be driven by the, the local communities that are interested and willing to, to take on this task. They just need these obstacles out of their way. Mm -hmm. Where can people learn more about this issue? Uh, so I mentioned earlier Fix America's Forest, which is Perk's new report on the wildfire crisis. Uh, you can find that easily on Perk's website, which is perk.org, P-E-R-C.org. And uh, as a citizen, like, what would you recommend that people do if they care more about preventing large and dangerous federal forest fires? Uh, I would say that the best thing to do, especially if you live in the West near, near forests that are at risk, is to find out whether there are these any, any of these collaborative opportunities out there that you can participate in and try to support. Um, that, that really is the greatest opportunity we have. Um, otherwise, I, I think there are lots of opportunities to influence the, the Forest Service and, and Congress. There are bills pending right now. There are rule, rulemakings coming out from the agency regularly on a lot of these issues. Um, and those processes tend to be dominated not by the people who actually have a stake and whose homes are threatened, but by national mm -hmm. organizations and industry. Um, so getting that perspective in, in those discussions is critical. Jonathan, thank you for helping us explore the Overton window and good luck in your attempts to shift it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about the Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.